you just have a bunch of parts of your brain working together. And the end result of that is this weird collection of things that you think of as conscious and others that you think of as unconscious and things that you think of as emotion and things that you think of as reason and like all these kinds of categories of thing, right? That are all being handled actually by kind of separate things that are shared with each other. And then we just so call that. Is, we call that yourself. Being a brain is a team sport, you know? Yeah, yeah. It really is. <laughs> Scotch. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 424 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm the miscellaneous programmer. I'm Sam and I'm suddenly realizing how big of a number that is. It's a big one. It's a big one. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. What? Uh, Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of episodes. Uh, It's weird how most weeks I don't even know. I'm like, well, it doesn't even register. And then I'm yeah. like, what the hell? What has been going on? Yeah. A lot. Well, I guess we could go back and listen and find out. Uh, but it would take 424 anyway, hours to do It would take a minute. <laughs> it would take some time. Uh, this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. And today is Friday, July 14th, 20 Jubilee. Uh, bearing in mind that, of course, Friday the 13th is an unlucky day. But the luck had to go somewhere. I assume it went. To here, yeah, today, to Friday the fourteenth. Yes, uh, so it's good. It's a. It's been a great day so far. Very lucky. Mm-hmm. Gonna maybe go buy a lottery ticket, a or scratch a, ticket, yeah. or a cannoli vape. You know, yeah, you just, just roll your luck with those. You know, yeah, yeah. you never know what's yeah. gonna be in there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Could be a lizard. Uh, Anyways, also, we have a warning there's going to be profanity in this show, and also thanks to our supporters at moneygrab.bscotch.net. Let's get into the real, let's get into the real shit. Get in there. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to talk about game design today. Oh, My understanding okay. is this is a game, you know, game podcast. Sometimes it is. Um, mm-hmm. So it's been a really interesting uh, game design Pandora's box that has blossomed in the World of Warcraft community as of this past Tuesday. I want to talk about it. Uh, So the high level is that a new kind of character has been added to the game that has new capabilities that we've never seen before in in the game. And it's throwing everything out of whack in the most hilarious of ways. Okay. So that's the, that's the hook. So let's, Mm -hmm. let's talk about what, how this actually works. So in, in this game, there's essentially like three core kinds of player you can be, okay? You can be a tank where you uh, you get hit by stuff. You, you, you absorb sort of like, damage. You absorb yeah. damage and your primary job is is positioning. You you go around and you like get all the enemies to hit you and then you try to group you them corral. together, corral them, and that allows your damage dealers, which is the next type of player, to come in and just beat the hell out of everything. Like the more enemies you get into a tighter pack – the easier it is to just blow them all up with big, big damage, okay? Um, So the tank is a very important role. And the tank, you know, if you don't have a good tank, it's hard to do good damage. Because if if the enemies are scattered all around... And also everyone just dies immediately. No one else can take hits. Everybody just dies. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because there's other stuff, like some enemies do like a big frontal cone attack. And if if the tank points them at the group... Not good. Instead of away from the group, that's bad. That's not good, right? So tanks have a big job... But uh, and the, and they're super important for your group's ability to to defeat enemies. Um, but you know it's kind of a thankless job because you know the damage dealers are the ones that have the big number. They're the ones that do mm-hmm. big damage. 
And so damage dealers have this kind of reputation of being kind of self-absorbed about that fact and failing to recognize that it's, it's a group smart. effort. You know, <laughs> uh, they're just like big number go up. And they're like the CEOs of World of Warcraft, right? Where, Basically, yeah. Yeah. Where really everything yeah. is like, oh, like a CEOs do a lot less than that. So maybe that's true. true. CEOs do far less than your average yeah. World of Warcraft player, I would say. Um, <laughs> So, so, all right. So you got your tank, you got your damage dealers. And then the third type of player is a healer. And as you'd expect, their job is to keep people alive. The tank's taking damage, healer heals them. Damage dealers will sometimes get hit by things. Damage dealers are also referred to as DPS, which is damage per second, which is just, you know, that's just an acronym for them. So healers keep people alive, DPS kill things, tanks round up the mobs and stay alive. Uh, so this is how the game has been forever. And just this past Tuesday, they added this new kind of a of a character class called the Augmentation Evoker, which is a incredibly long name. We'll just yes. call it let's call it Augvokers for short. Uh, so the whole thing about an Augvoker is that they're a support class, which is a whole new thing where they just buff other players. They just make you do more damage, or they make you take less damage, or they make you do more healing, and that fact isn't isn't attributed to them. So right, like it's not visible it, anywhere. So you can't it's not visible. Right. You can't so, see how much they're helping. You just know that in theory they are. Yeah. And so so <laughs> there's kind of like these two ends of the spectrum that have appeared over the course of this week, which is which is that commu- the community on the on the low end of performance, like the lesser skilled players, hate augmentation evokers. They hate having them in their group. Because an augmentation evoker, if they buff a bad player, the buff is essentially worthless. <laughs> yep. Mm. And the augmentation evoker can't really do much on their own. Like their whole thing is, I buff you. You're all. You are strong. Yeah. So if you're I playing with you and bad very players, strong. then you also wasted. Then you are. Then there's no point in having an augmentation yeah. evoker. And and you know, fully half of the player base is not good enough to warrant having one mm-hmm. of these characters in their group. Um, and they found, and like on the lower end, these players have found that whenever they bring an augmentation evoker, everything's way harder for them, right? So, but on the upper end, uh, immediately, all the best players in the world are like, oh my God, augmentation evoker is insanely overpowered. We have to have one. So every single one of the top end groups, of which there are like a thousand, they all have an augmentation evoker because if you've got an incredibly good player and then you boost their damage by like fifty or a hundred percent, you can't. You couldn't make up for it. It's yeah. a two x incredibly good player, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah no exactly. Way to, yeah. yeah, and so so on the low end, it's being shunned, and on the high end, you just you, it's required. It's just just it's completely required, and the community perception about it is just so weird, like. I've never seen a thing like this where like you've got a character that's terrible at in the easy content and incredible in the hard content, mm-hmm. which is purely just based on like team dynamics, you know? Yeah. Well, I think um, what's, what's interesting to me about this is that the, you have the classic trifecta in a game like, well, you have this in like most RPGs and, and frankly, most single player games too, which is you kind of choose your mode, right? Are you going to be- Are you slow and tanky or yeah. fast and- Glass cannon, you know? Yeah, it's, or, a, it's the common way of balancing this stuff, right? You don't usually make something that's like super fast and murders everything, like, like sort of, you know, just easily uh, if you're trying to provide some interesting choice. 
Uh, and so what's interesting to me about it as far as like their approach is that WoW in particular is very much built up on, like all the content is built up on just the trifecta. And a big part of that is that the roles are clear enough that if you, like you're a DPS or a healer or whatever else, if you're looking at your own numbers, while it's true that you're never capturing the full picture of what's happening, it's not, you're not missing a ton of information, right? Yeah. Well, people have gotten used to interpreting the nuances of those numbers over it. Well, I wouldn't decades go that far, but they've well, been but used in theory. To <laughs> yeah. yeah, in theory. And so yeah. what's interesting about this is is the inclusion of this class, which essentially is an invisible hand because of how data is tracked, how data is surfaced for other players, yeah. where you as a damage dealer cannot see the damage that you're doing because this person's present, nor is, right. can you as a tank see the damage that you're not taking because this person's present. Etc. Yep. And so shipping this along with yeah, no that was a weird mistake that they ability did. to see yeah. it. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, no it's visibility. They actually the the base game does not include any way to see how much damage you're doing. You have to do that through add-ons. Mm-hmm. So it's already the case that the, that the players have tried to solve this problem on their own. It's true. Yeah. Um, and there are you know forthcoming updates to those add-ons to try to essentially take the extra damage that the evoker has given to other players and move that into that player's progress bar, basically mm-hmm. on their own damage meter. Yeah. Um, but then this has kind of opened up all kinds of, it's just a can of worms of conversations about this very thing, which is that there's tons of other classes that also bring some kind of mm-hmm. utility mm-hmm. buff. So like an, an easy example is like as a monk, anything that I hit will just forever take 5% more physical damage. So if I've got physical damage dealers in my group, they just get 5% more damage, but that damage gets attributed to them, not to me. Yeah, right. Okay. So all they know is, well, my damage is great. I'm so good at video game, right? <laughs> when, when really, 5% of that, I, you know, that's because I did that. That's because I'm there. I didn't do anything special. I just was there. Yeah, the, so the, the point is um, that, the, that the numbers already have a lot of nuance inside them that already is not being taken into account. And it wasn't until this extreme form of this was introduced by this new character class that basically gets zeros for everything because yeah. there's no way to attribute it currently. Uh, but also has a because you're talking like a five percent impact, right? But here for like your monk, it's stuff, like a hundred. Right? But here it's like a hundred percent. So not only is it so now the fact that like to take the nuance that there was that there is no nuance becomes such a problem because the interpretation of the results are dramatically skewed by the behavior yes. of this other player versus like because they still must be skewed as quite a bit by the group dynamics and all the weird stuff that everyone oh, totally. can do. Yeah, yeah but. Yeah. Yeah, so so because it, it presumably it's just already a lie. And there's already too much of this whole like DPS imagining they're doing a lot better than they are because everybody else around them is really good, but but a, to a tolerable degree, I guess. It, right? it very much reminds me of that that uh, comic or meme of like the the dude on the third place in the podium, like celebrating and spraying himself in the face with champagne, like thinking that he got first place when really like he he's not he's not even close, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you need you need a whole team of people to to clear this content and it's all like working in concert. But yeah, like you're saying, up until now, people have been able to kind of believe that they're an island, yeah, you know, right, even right. though it's clearly not true, but like there was enough subtleties to it that it was, you could kind of hand wave it. Um, but then even, even more challenging is that there are like in some, like, let's say, let's say this character comes in and it's just like, Hey, whenever I push this button, you do 30% more damage for 10 seconds, right? Mm-hmm. That's just a flat fixed number. And it's very easy to reverse engineer what like how, how much damage I added to you and then sort of like 
take that out and reattribute it back to me, right? That's easy. But let's say you're a character that's like, oh, every time you get a critical hit, which is a random event, maybe you have like a, you've got 20% crit chance or something. Every time you get a critical hit, uh, you gain, you know, a 20% damage buff for five seconds, right? And if I buff your chance to crit, then what you don't know is if you get a crit, is it because of the extra bit that I gave you or were you going to get that crit anyways? Well, I mean, you, you, right? you, you <laughs> could do it probabilistically, right? So that if you, yeah. if you double the chance to crit, then you would get half of the crit value. In theory, yeah. 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 And so there's, there's all this like, and a lot of this kind of nuance has already been there. Like there's already been classes that like give crit buffs or haste buffs or, you know, whatever. And uh, you've always had the damage dealers fighting over who gets yeah. who gets those buffs because they want their own personal number to be bigger, yeah. right? Um, and now it's just this huge can of worms where where everybody's now questioning everything. And, like, would, and they should have been already, right? But now they just like really yeah, have. Now to. it's way more obvious. And then there's a there's a further kind of design problem that's come from this, um, which is that which is that up until now, like because the the different like character classes in the game were somewhat independent. Like yeah, they did buff each other like by five percent here or there or whatever. Um, but it wasn't like if you have uh you know an augmentation evoker now if you pair them with a mage. Then like just because of the way the buffs work, the mage gets like triple benefit compared to everybody else. Right. And so now it's like, well, now you definitely want an augmentation evoker, but it but you also now have to have a mage. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then suddenly it's like because of the way the buffs work or it don't up, work, it ends up with filling, different it ends up basically requiring certain multiple slots to be filled in yes. a particular yeah. way. Well, yeah, because it creates highest level play. Right. It creates positive feedback loops. Yep. But in the absence of those loops, then you get nothing, basically, right? Yeah. Mm. And so now there's a problem, which is now mages are about to get nerfed. (laughs) Not because they're good, but because evokers buff them so much, right? And so they're not buffing, they're not nerfing evokers because evokers don't disproportionately affect everybody else. They only disproportionately benefit mages, which if mages become weaker, then that means now you always have to have an evoker yeah, to with a mage to bring them back up to right. So it's just like there's this whole thing where now everything is getting really constrained. Um, so like all of the top, uh, uh, all the top dungeon runs in the game from these past few days, every single one of them is the same five specs of like the what's forty available? Five. Well, yeah, sorry. There's there's like forty ish total. Yeah. Right. And they're like, and this is five man group content. And all of the top runs now look the are same. exact. They look exactly the same because it's now it's like there is a best way to do it. Basically, there is a best way. We're pre- or up until Monday of this week, there were lots of different ways you could do it. But now it's like, all right, bring whoever gets the biggest benefit from being augmented. Yep, and and that's your group, right? <laughs> so, I think this is interesting because so, it's also uh, we talk about games a lot as like you're you're basically creating a simulation of some imagined kind of reality, right? And mm-hmm. then and then game development, game design is all about trying to figure out okay, what happens then when we when we have this universe that we've created when things interact and like what incentives are we creating and how do we measure what's going on all that kind of stuff, right? How do we balance it and all of this is just a dramatic, like the whole very complicated thing you described is a much infinitely simpler version of like any similar thing out in the world, right? And if you think yeah, about this, it's like, yeah, this this is why we like issue KPIs and this kind of stuff, right? Because these are the same. You can think of a, of a key performance indicator in a business 
as your DPS meter, right? your damage meter, yep. uh, or, or or literally any attempts to measure someone's performance. You're right? talking about like during sprints, people talk about velocity. Yep. How many during cars sprints? Did you move yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. And uh, or how many how many bugs did you clear? How many how many whatever? Yep. Right? Because there's so much interdependence on a on a high performing team that you can't meaningfully disentangle like who did what. Right. Yes. Well, as they say, isn't it like as soon as you, as soon as a measurement becomes a goal, it stops being a measurement. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, cause now people start optimizing toward making that number big, yep. regardless of the nuance of why it's big and yep. how it could be bigger collectively. Yeah. You know? That's why like it's so important stuff. to choose. So, so it's like GDP as our, which is, is the KPI our government uses to decide if the United States is doing a good job. Right. But like GDP, if you optimize for that, you're optimizing for wealth disparity, actually, right? You're not actually optimizing for like quality of life of the average person, right? Well, and weirdly, GDP is essentially how much shit did people buy? Yeah, exactly. Ultimately. And it's like, why is that the – Yeah. But, why by, is that but the, by people, that people includes companies and the whole thing, right? Like it's it's yeah. it's just how much money moved around. Um, and, and since this is a, that's what we optimize for, then everything about our entire, you know, system is aligned around, okay, we'll make the money move more and in bigger amounts. And the easy way to do that is just to keep putting money on rich people, you know? So like, well, and also this is to, a good model to, of, uh, just keep adding people. And like, just keep adding keep people. growing yeah. the population. Well, yeah, because it's also the, the KPI is about growth. It's not about like, oh yeah, it stayed flat. That's actually good, Right. Um, it has to grow. It has to grow, and so, for some reason, yeah. And so, so when you're every time you choose a KPI um, in a system of any level of complexity, you're just that's basically always bad, right? But if you're going to do it, you have to then think through the nuances of okay, what does this do, right? And I think with, yeah, well, I think it's interesting because it's not necessarily that it's bad so much as I think that going into it not realizing that it creates incentives is. That it's not just a measurement is what's is sort of the put it this way. It's extremely useful. It's like it's like a deadline or any of these other things, right? Where it's like it you could pick them arbitrarily, but they exert a tremendous amount of real world influence that can shape the nature of the of the work or the lives of the people who are like within that thing. But you still might need them in order to well, they can um, be like have something to hold with on nuance. But the thing yeah, is like, yeah, because this is where you get into this discussion where I, where I think people still fall into the trap too often of thinking that well, having having a number is better than not having any, right? Which right, right, just is Which not is not true. always true. That's yes. just <laughs> not true because you have to if if you can't fully work through the nuances of how to understand what that number means, what it means when it's big and small, and you know whatever, right? Then you're better off not having it. It's just better to not have it. And I think it's or, or it's better to have a bunch of numbers. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, try, try but to that's, where the, that's where the nuance yeah. comes from, right? Is, is from the yeah. other stuff. So, so I think the situation that sounds like Blizzard is in right now, or like WoW is in right now, is that is that the numbers that used to still have enough nuance that they were a problem, but mm-hmm. actually still were meaningful without the nuance, right? Yes. Yeah. Just not as meaningful as we would like, but still meaningful, have turned into things that actually are largely not meaningful now because the nuance is so too big. important and like and yeah. is too large actually. And it has a it's large no longer nuance on those things. Right? It's, it's actually it's no missing, nuance. Yeah. It's just, missing, right, you're just misinformation. Yeah. Well, um, it was already the case. Like it would drive me crazy when like I because like DPS players are they have a reputation for being uh inappropriately competitive about their damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll take big risks, 
to try to like squeeze out one more ability cast, you know, and then they'll do this weird thing where they'll be in a group with somebody on a team trying to do the same thing. They're both killing the same boss or whatever, like they're working together. And when somebody else in their group starts doing more damage than them, they're upset about it. (laughs) (laughs) And there's all kinds of like running jokes. And in some cases people will actually do it where like about sabotaging sabotaging another player's ability to do damage so that your damage bar is bigger. Yeah. Uh, right. As like, it's just, there's no understanding of if we as a group are doing less damage then everything is hard. Right? Well, I think what I think <laughs> a lot of this comes down to how even groups and things like that are structured or thought about in these contexts, right? Which is, it's only at the highest level of play in a game like this, where the group itself functions like a player as in like a unified it's organism unit. because it lives for a long time. You're not just doing a run and then just five other random people, you know, each time. Yeah. And so it's only when yeah, you have you, like a, you learn as a group, you basically have a band, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like you have a band or a, or a team from like a basketball league or something. It's not just random stuff. It's, it's kind of like, I mean, you see in like pickup games of say soccer or basketball or whatever else. Like the reality is that most people, while it's fun on the team aspect, you'll see oftentimes there'll be at least a person who is very intense about their own performance being just awesome. Even if, like we, I played kickball in St. Louis and there's this guy on our team who would not change his method for kicking the ball because he, he just wanted to kick it as far as he could, right? And it was like... Just far. That's his KPI. Yeah. Most, <laughs> most fully grown adults playing kickball who are in the outfield will catch any goddamn thing you kick their way. So you got to... It's big. It's a big red yeah. ball, right? Like, and, but like one out of every like 10 times he did it, they'd miss. And then he'd do full lap. Maybe like, oh my God, so cool, yeah, right? I am a god but before my kickball skills. The other nine times, guaranteed strikeout, right? And so it's one of those things where like he's playing, again, ma- maximizing a different set of parameters than everybody else. And so there's no, if you're not being, if you're not able to live long enough as a group or as a team, people moving around, whatever else, then your incentive to see that bigger picture and recognize that it's like, oh yeah, it's this overall group damage. It's this overall capacity for the team to do you know, make a video game or whatever else, it just kind of gets eroded and you kind of, you just start kind of looking out for your own enjoyment in something, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, depending on the context, because there might not be anybody looking out for the broader, there might not be any sense. I think it, I mean, I think it is a bad thing in any team context. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you are just not at all optimizing for the group's success and you've just picked some personal metric with no regard for what that actually means for the team's ability to accomplish its its goals. I I agree if it's the case that the team is trying to function as a team. I think the challenge is like we were talking about this so many times you're talking about it in like a in a corporate environment or in a in a even like casual environment where where the whole thing is just not it's just not functioning as a team if that makes sense like but it's supposed Everyone. to be, though, you know? It's, like supposed, it's supposed to be. To be. Yeah, and the problem is that yeah. each one of these things is like each KPI that is that is that goes against the idea of people working as a team, or, or at least just as de- decoupled from that, right, um, further actually drives the team away from team behavior, right? Yeah. Because, and so like, so if you have like, so if you're t- if, even like in World of Warcraft, if you have it so that, oh, there's a really, we can like, there's a bar for how much healing you did. Right. And oh, there's a bar for how much damage you did. And oh, there's a bar for how much damage you took. And those are the three things. Right. Then, if that's all the information that you have, then everyone's goal, like all they can like look at is basically like, okay, well, I'm responsible for that number. So I need to make that number as big as possible. Right. When the fact is, it doesn't matter how big that number is. Right. And like, 
like a, a person taking damage, like ideally they would still cluster everybody up without actually taking any damage, right? Like ideally, yeah. right? They keep ideally, alive. a no, damage yeah. dealer would just time the damage really well so that the amount they did was less important than when they did it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's enough nuance all the time with all of these things that the moment you just use these dead simple metrics to try to understand something, you actually drive you 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 make team based work impossible. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And I like I I say this to my teammates all the time. Where like if my healing numbers are big, we have a problem and we need to figure that out. Yeah, because that means people are taking too much damage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. Yeah. I don't want my number to be big. I yeah. want it to be as I want it. I want it to be zero. Zero percent. I want mm-hmm. no. I want. I don't want to ever have to save anybody. Even though that's my job, mm-hmm. right? But like. The more damage people take, that means we're making a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And with your right? damage so, dealers, what you also want is that you want everybody to be really good so that also like you can manage if somebody's gone or whatever, right? Which means what you want is to have everybody have similarly very large numbers, right? You want a yeah. minimum discrepancy between the lowest number and the biggest number, right? And so again, like you don't but, – but you can't optimize for that, that. Right. Yeah. Well, weirdly though, now like because of these augmentation evokers, because of mages, and then there's a then like priests also have a an external buff that they can give to somebody. So now, now every group comp is no longer about maximizing like overall damage. It's just make the mage do as much damage as (laughs) possible. So everybody just buffs the mage. Well, that becomes the the team dynamic, actually. Right? Is that? Yeah. Can be. Yeah. 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 And so it's. and, and it's, yeah, in it's that case, you might understand if like if everyone like understand again, this is where the nuance comes in, right? If people in that context understand, okay, our goal as a team is to drive this is to all of us drive this number up. Right. This one's turn this number. person into a demigod for as long yeah. as possible. And then as long as everybody knows that that's what we're doing, and so they understand like what that number means, which is not, oh, this person is really good, look how big their number was. It's it means our team. Oh, good. look how good our team is yeah. because we were able to work together to make that number as big as possible, right? right. Yeah. Well, that's why you can't, at the very high end, you don't have players with those, like those egos. Cause like if, if the mage player was, was flaunting and like throwing in everybody's face about how great their damage was when really like, that's the whole point. Like that's the whole strategy is like make that person's damage big. If they were shit talking everybody in their group. <laughs> yeah. So weird, right? You're like, again, well, back to the metaphor then that, of like being in a being in a company with a bad manager, right? Of like the manager taking credit for all the things that go well, and then it's somehow everybody else's fault when things don't. And you know, the whole thing. Like it's just the same dynamics. It's fast. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 been interesting to kind of like watch the community like grapple with this. And it's also been very, in my opinion, very very sort of shaded and Freud satisfying mm-hmm. to watch players who have been playing as uh as damage dealers and then they switch to this they switch to this new support character Mm. and then they they say things that are so obvious but it's like a whole new revelation for them where they say things like wow when one of my teammates dies it makes things really hard (laughs) (laughs) because it's like they're like i have one less person to buff and i'm like it's that's always been true. It's always been true that when one of your teammates dies, it's things bad. get hard. <laughs> it was just that you they just were the didn't one dying shit. because they were taking yeah. risks, right? Yeah. yeah. Either you were the one dying or you just didn't give enough of a shit because all you were looking at was your own number and make big number bigger. You know? <laughs> yeah. And and, and in, in many cases, like I would see, like I was talking about earlier, like a damage dealer would die and then the other damage dealers would start to celebrate because now they can make their number get much yep. bigger than that person's, right? And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is a group effort. It's weird that Don't, these, that groups, I guess, are, are these like 
guilds where this is happening or is this like random groups? Because it would be bizarre to me to have a guild where you intentionally have people who are in, have grouped themselves together on purpose and then that behavior is allowed to exist. You know? it, happens, it happens in every group except for essentially like the top 1% of Yeah, of I guess it is like yeah. it's the way that all human organizations work, isn't it? So. Yeah. It's very it's very ego ego driven, right? And yeah. like only only once you give up on that and just start thinking about how do we collectively meet our goals that you see people actually start to excel as a as a team and stop like sabotaging each other or shit talking each other or being mad because somebody else out damaged you and then like lock like alt F four quitting the game for a couple days because mm-hmm. you're pissed off that your group did well but not because of you explicitly. I don't know like the it's just so it's, such horrible behavior. I think it's it's a cool and interesting change, you know, to like introduce something like this uh, just because of all of this nuance. But uh, it's going to be a very turbulent, you know, remainder yeah. of the season <laughs> while all these kinks get worked out. Well, um, I think there's an I think there's also an important takeaway here, which is um, which is because like you know, art reflects life, and and video games are just little universes that we make that. In order to play, they have to somehow map onto the real world so you can understand what's happening, you know? Yep. Uh, I think this is one of those things when you're making a social game um, where if you don't design it so that it already just tries to enforce good team right. building and try, team behavior. Try to bend those incentives. Right. The then all you're going to do is replicate the average uh, team-based behavior just of people, right? Which is because we aren't trained how to be good teammates, actually, like most of us in most contexts. Uh, and so the net effect then is you actually exacerbate these problems. Whereas if you, and like Seth, like you said, like the really high performers, like the, the reason they're so high performing is because they have worked their way out of that bad behavior to yeah, actually operate. They, as a team, they right? zoom out. Yeah, and I think this is the same. It's the same. In, it's the same in sports. It's the same in companies. It's the same in any relationship. Same dynamic, in the right? studio. You know, it's like yeah, exactly. I used to be like, look how much art I'm making. La 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 la. And meanwhile, Seth's just like. Just I'm dying. Can you stop? <laughs> Can you fuck that? I'm like, no. Well, look how fast is, I'm going. <laughs> people talk about like the, the the problem of the the 10x developer. You know, mm-hmm. it's the, it's the programmer who comes in and they're like, I can fucking code anything by myself from scratch. I'm gonna move every. I'm gonna move all the Kanban boards. I can do anything. And then they you they're very confident, mm-hmm. and it's very exciting for the manager to see this one person appear to be outputting the the workload of like five or 10 programmers. And then what you need then is those five or 10 programmers to be cleaning up behind them the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually does take 10 programmers to handle (laughs) the messes that that person's making. And then when that person leaves, you know, why are they, why are they putting out code so fast? It's because they're not writing tests. They're not writing documentation. They're not, they're not they're doing not anything. working as a team. They're not teaching people. They're not helping people through stuff, mm-hmm. right? They're, it's just all them somehow. Yeah. yeah. So then, of course, when they leave or when they're unavailable, then all hell breaks loose. And like in the in the uh, the Phoenix project, the yeah. book we always talk about for DevOps, it was like what Brent or Brett or whatever. Yeah, like there's one this one guy in their IT department who knows everything and is involved in everything. That's their 10x developer, and they literally can't function as a company because of this person. Mm-hmm. Not it's not that they can't function without him. It's that they can't do anything because this person is the linchpin to too many things and they can't do it, right? So, yeah, it's like you get it's all the same. You always see yeah, you see these little echoes of this stuff, right? Yeah, it's all fractal. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah, but I think uh, yeah, I think I, part of the frustration I have when I see these multiplayer games and it's like see the 
just toxic as fuck social yep. dynamics that are built in all of these is that if because the the game the game world is something you actually control as a designer right like it's really hard to predict all the possible outcomes and to do it make it you know happen exactly what you want to that's certainly true yeah. right but you do get to control that whole fucking universe though which means if you wanted to optimize for trying to cause players to work better together and like learn how to cooperate and all that kind of stuff you could prioritize that in your design and the end result, like take, take the 10 million people, or whatever, who play World of Warcraft regularly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now take the fact that Seth, you're like, oh yeah, 90 or 99% of teams like are made up of this really horrible dynamic, right? Now imagine if 90, if 90% of them were made of the good dynamic instead, because the game helped to create that. And now those 10 million people go out into the world, into their workplaces and their homes. And, like, and they're, they're starting to carry those lessons with and them. And they carry those lessons with them and the How whole world like gets better. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. like I mean, we, we do this with the studio where we bring stuff from the studio into our regular lives and back, mm-hmm. right? When As we find better ways of managing interpersonal dynamics and how to th- like just think about problem solving and how to solve our own stuff, right? We just keep moving that back and forth between all the different environments we use. And like Seth, I'm without a doubt, and I've heard from you talking about stuff, like you take the stuff from the studio back into the guild and vice versa, right? Mm -hmm. Like all this stuff transfers everywhere. And so it's the thing that drives me the most crazy about these like big AAA competitive, but competitive team-based video games is that for some fucking reason during the whole like design Mm -hmm. process, they were just like... They just acted like people don't have social dynamics. They're behaving right? like economists. Yeah, they're behaving like economists. Right? Yeah, exactly. Well, and, every as we know, every person is a rational utility maximizer with perfect information. <laughs> so that's not. Yeah. That's not anything. Just, that's not a thing. Yeah, you just have to, and it has to work that way. From I know there's a lot of discussion on Blue Sky right now, one of the Twitter competitors, right? Because the fucking dummies who are running it were like, "Well, this is just like we're just this is our test bed for this like technology we're developing, right?" But they've opened it. They're op- they've opened it to the public, right? So like, it's got I don't know, hundred thousand users. Yeah, on te- or a test bed is that's with like a beta or dev servers. Yeah, because but now for- of course now the Nazis are showing up, right? And yeah. there's like there was a big hole of blue because there was a user who put the N word in their username, and apparently they didn't have a check for that in the back end, right? So like, wow. and their Pretty response is just like, well, this is <laughs> just a, this is just a test bed, you know? And they're like, we haven't we just haven't like identified all the places where we need to work on moderation stuff. And I'm, like, I was thinking back to us doing Levelhead. Yeah, that's not an edge case, man. For the the moment we designed anything, every single thing we were like, if a user can choose to do something, someone will weaponize it. So how do we make it so that they either can't or we minimize the impact of that? And we did that for every design decision. Minimize the incentives, yeah. Yeah. And did that for every design decision, Um, every single one, right? And then you see, and and we're making just a a fun video game that's barely even competitive. You don't, right? Like... Mm And then other yeah, people are out here player. building social yeah. networks or they're building multiplayer yeah, where you shoot each other. For us. Yeah, yeah exactly. And we're like, yeah, and well, we and we understand though that like people will weaponize literally anything. And yeah. you have to design the thing to actually cause them to work together and, and collaboratively and to celebrate each other's wins. And you can design for that. You can absolutely yeah, yeah, design to, understand, to incentivize that. Yeah, you need to understand people, you need to understand group dynamics and like you yeah. need to understand person, like how how individually people think and are motivated, but you also need to think about about group dynamics and how individual motivations can potentially undermine group dynamics and you yeah. know, all that stuff. And, and like you're saying about Nazis, right? Like you got to recognize there's this this fucking rule on the internet, which is you know how like if you if you leave any like sugary thing out, you just get ants. Yep. Right. It's like if you if you leave an unmoderated community 
You get Nazis. They just, they <laughs> just come in. They're just like, oh, oh I, I, I just detect my Nazi senses are tingling. I've <laughs> yeah. detected a place where I can go shit on people, right? Yep. And they show up in droves. And you, yeah. you can't budge an, an inch on moderation or any of that no, stuff. Be as soon as you do, the gate. they come in with a crowbar and they pry that inch open into a mile-wide gulf, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So, anyways, yeah. it's, it's been, just, you know— Drives me nuts. I'll, I'll bring in some updates about like how all this, if there, if anything interesting, kind of changes with it. But I think it's just kind of a, uh, you know, just an interesting design moment in yep. history. Yeah. You know? so, uh, now I also want to talk about the Chat GPT code interpreter, which Sam, you had some, yeah. Adam, you guys had some experiences with this week. Uh, yeah. Well, I just want to mention because you know, we've talked a bit about Chat GPT, about some use cases for it that we've had in house, um, largely around. A little bits of code, maybe some basically a, a combo partner for uh, marketing messaging, kind of that sort of stuff. They recently launched, if you're a subscriber, which costs 20 bucks a month, a uh, additional feature called Code Interpreter. And what that does is it basically gives ChatGPT right out of the box the ability to write and execute its own code. And it gives you the ability to upload files for it to yes. use. Yeah. And so with that combination, then you can do stuff like, you know, take a like a CSV or a, a spreadsheet file, for example, that you maybe normally would have put into Excel, done a bunch of work to analyze whatever else. And you can just give it chat GPT and be like, hey, make me a graph of this. And even if that's all you say, it'll be like, I don't know exactly what you mean, but here's like a good idea of what I could do based on the structure of this data. And here's what it looks like. Also, I animated it into a GIF. Uh, go, you know, impress people. And you're like, OK, thanks. Buddy, uh, and it's, it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, it's fast. It's very fast. And, and because it's because it's writing code, because it's basically writing and running code on some server behind the scenes, right? Just yeah. writing Python specifically. And it'll show you the code it wrote, which is cool because then you can like take, take and adapt it, it if you need to. Uh, or if you have like, if you're doing a test data set and having it help you figure out how to like analyze it and generate plots and stuff, then you can then take, you can just literally take the code that it wrote and then bring that mm-hmm. over to your own system, right? But like the, so, the main value is it removed the, the size barrier that was there previously. Well, besides just like also giving you much more interesting outputs with like graphs and stuff, right? Yeah. But because it removed that barrier, because now it doesn't have to, like, ChatGPT itself doesn't have to, like, read the whole file you upload, right? It just has to read enough of it to know what the patterns are. Mm-hmm. And then it can write a small program that to then operate on that whole file. And so that it doesn't actually have to hold all this stuff in its memory because it can't. It has a, a very strict memory limitation, right? And so this is a way around it. So well, what, it, what I found is super useful then is, like, there's a lot of stuff that we have to do in the studio or even if you're just a regular person doing stuff where you got to take data that like multiple companies give you or even the same company, but different formats. And you got to do something with it. Right. We've talked a lot about how one of ChatGPT's main powers is just transformation, transformation of data, transformation of uh, language, transformation of, I mean, I don't know, a recipe into a wrap. I thing. mean, it's in the name, you know, that's what the T stands for. It's transformer. That's true. Yeah. There you go. So the nice thing about this is that there's some data that we've always had access to technically in that it exists. It's a pain in the ass though. Yeah, but it's a pain in the ass to like merge it all together. And the best example, if you're a game dev uh, out there, a fun use case for this to just play with it uh, is that Steam does this really weird, dumb thing where they provide you the total traffic that is coming to your store page, right? That's not the dumb thing. That's that's cool. That's well, it's kind of cool, except yeah. <laughs> uh, except for the fact that when you download it, it's not given to you by date. It's mm-hmm. instead only given to you by bucketed by the category 
of traffic. So where did this, where was this coming from? Was it direct traffic? Was it on the Steam front page? Was yeah, it and and I think page? the way that I would generally summarize Steam's, like the data they give to you is that they have fuckloads of really interesting data, but the only way you can get it is by looking at the things that they have curated to present to you, right? Yes. And you can't just, so if you have questions that aren't addressed by, that are addressed potentially by the data, but not by how they're showing it to you or yes. like how they're mixing it together, you can't get those answers a lot it's of the time. Very actually. hard. Yeah. Yeah. And even like things that should be simple, which is like blending, for example, how much traffic did I get onto my store page on this day with how many wish lists or how many purchases did I get also on that day? Can I see those two things together? No, no, I cannot. Um, <laughs> you can see them separately, you know, um, and in fact, in like three separate places and all sorts of stuff like that. And so there's been, you know, we, we want to be able to actually put some data together so you can see the effects of some of these events, many sales that we're doing, whatever else, or just frankly, just to have a clearer picture of what the fuck is happening without having to look across like four different tabs, right? And they so, also all load slowly. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to spend four hours just to get the answer to a question that you have every week. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And so, uh, using GPT and the code interpreter, then I was able to I basically pulled down the CSVs that, that were available from Steam, um, found the issues with. The, ChatGPT recommended ways to fix those issues, including using a computer vision tool that I've never even heard of to just give it a picture of that nice chart that it shows you of your traffic over time, which is data it does not give you, but it shows you as a graph, and actually reverse extrapolate it out of the picture using OCR. I didn't know that's even possible. So it lets you do, basically, ChatGPT was like, hey, do all these things and give me all that data, and we'll kind of figure it out. And then it did the data cleaning. And then if I could output this beautiful graph that had like event markers and everything else on it, that was so much more comprehensive than anything I've been able to do so far. And then, you know, just wasn't like a huge pain in the ass to do. You know what I mean? Like, like it's still a little tedious, but it's not. So so the one that I used it for was like, was uh, simpler in some ways, but it's just just like tedious stuff, right? Which was that I, I needed to convert some documentation from Game Maker into code, right? And so they had a whole bunch of HTML tables on their on the, the the site, and so I needed those as data, and then I needed to convert that data into something that was programmery, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so I was looking at that, and I was like, and it's just a whole bunch of like disparate separate tables, and I'm like, okay, what is the way that doesn't suck to to do this right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And historically, what I would have done in that scenario is like just download the HTML and then write a script to like parse it and convert it. Um, because so like, that's like a whole afternoon project. Well, yeah. For me, I'm familiar enough with the tech. It's like, you know, half an hour, an hour. Right. But, but still like it's, it's a bunch Effort. of really tedious stuff and a lot of trial and error because things are not usually well uh, crafted on the internet and stuff, you know? Uh, and, or I would try to like copy paste it just like raw out and then see if I can convert the spacing into a, like a tab mm-hmm. separated tape, you know, or whatever. But anyway, it's, it ends up being this kind of just horrible process. Right. Um, and so then this time I was just like, okay, cool. Let me go. So I got, I got, uh, I found a tool that I could use to just export the tables individually from HTML to mm-hmm. CSV files. And then I just uploaded all of them and told ChatGPT, Hey, I want these CSVs in this JavaScript data structure format. And it just did just spat them right out. That was it. End of the story. And, and I've been finding this too, cause, cause, uh, there's also a copy, which we talked about a bit is GitHub's toolkit that's built on top of 
the open AI stuff that they make chat GPT and all that. Um, and they now have this like little sidebar widget that is like a chat built right into your code editor. And similarly now just like, I'll just select some stuff and just be like, Hey, convert this into blah. Cause like, cause this is kind of similar because it also can see your code, right? Same kind of idea. And all this stuff that used to be this like really tedious find and replace where I have like, there was a, there's a particular skill I learned in Honor over the years of using regexes, regular expressions, which mm-hmm. are like a weird little mini coding language that you can use to find patterns and things in, in text, right? And I've gotten really good at those things because that's been my go-to solution to like solve these kinds of really annoying transformation problems. Um, and now all of a sudden I just get to write in plain ass English, you know, just, yeah. hey, do this. And now because of this ChatGPT plugin, you can kind of do it at any scale. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why. Well, I, I almost wondered. So there was a, an announcement about a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago. Uh, there was a white paper released by Microsoft about uh, expanding the context window for uh, ChatGPT to 1 billion tokens. So what that means is something like four gigabytes of text data. Yeah. So a token is just like a collection of characters. Usually, I think it's about four characters. You just think about it as a word. Yeah, it's almost interchangeable with words. So, um, so like as you're talking to ChatGPT uh, and the conversation gets longer, or if you pasted a big thing in there or whatever, while it's composing its response, it is only able to look back eight thousand tokens in the conversation. So something you'll notice is, like I noticed this when I was trying to have uh, ChatGPT be a dungeon master for a D&D campaign. Hmm. At the very beginning, it's like, fuck yeah, let's go. And it's like really good at being a DM. But once you get past the threshold where the conversation's been going on long enough that your initial instructions explaining to it, hey, you're a dungeon master, blah, blah, blah. Once it loses that context, then it just kind of defaults into its normal mode and it just becomes like a generic storyteller and stops being a a DM. It forgets its purpose. It forgets, yeah, it forgets things, right? And so- so the context window has kind of been like one of the biggest problems with LLMs, with large language models right now that people have been trying to solve. And the and way that they do so solve it currently until this like widening the window somehow has been adding in lots of layers of creative ways to reintroduce stuff. And so it's like in, in Copilot in your code editor, every time I was trying to give you autocomplete suggestions and stuff, it'll basically like relook at the tabs that you have open and the most recent code that you wrote and whatever, right? So basically it tries to like focus in on the likely most relevant. And so basically people, so then people have to go through and like work out all this logic of, okay, how do we, how do we go get the likely most relevant context information to feed into this highly constrained system? Yeah. And that part is still then really difficult and expensive and time consuming for people to figure out. Yeah, and so so this uh, this one billion token context window breakthrough is is really cool, and, and this is this is one of those things that keeps happening in the same way that uh, like it ha- keeps happening over and over again, where people are working on these large language models, and then they're like, well, how do how do people do it? Mm-hmm. And then they just figure out a way to replicate that in the LLM, and then it turns out it just works. So in the case of this context window thing, uh, the best analogy I've seen is is if you Let's say you're like standing outside and you're looking at this vista and you're looking out across this view and you can see mountains and like a river and like a little town, you know, on the side of the river. Like you can see tons of things. You can see millions of things technically, right, in your in your field of view, individual trees and boats and whatever. Um, but what what does your brain do when that happens? Your brain doesn't 
try to look through and catalog every single one of the million little things that you're seeing, your brain yeah, the, the raw kind of data like, is basically just the light intensity on each of the light receptors in your eyeball, right? right? And like that's yeah. not what you're actually – you're not looking at that. Yeah, there's right? a tremendous, you're not looking at millions of things. A, yeah, a tremendous right? amount of top-down processing going on from yeah. every single one of your senses. So there's this kind of like high-level categorization where your, first, your, your brain basically is like, oh, this is a nice view, right? You're, you're thinking of it as like a landscape view. It's just one thing that you're looking at. And then at different points, you can be like – you can focus your eyeballs and look at a boat, right? And you're like, oh, that's an interesting boat. And you haven't forgotten that the boat is part of the landscape or like where it is in the river or any of that stuff. But you're able to kind of like keep the context, the, the broader context of overall what it is you're looking at while still honing in on specific details. And you're able to then kind of like catalog all the little details of a thing and keep that in context, right? So it's kind of like this zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out kind of thing. And so uh, this is the paradigm shift that they're doing with this like 1 billion token thing is is there's multiple layers to the model where it's able to kind of create a high level sort of fuzzier view of the kinds of things that it's looking at in like a giant document or a huge code base or whatever. And then it's able to use that as a starting point to figure out where to get zoom in. Yeah. To get Which is basically like what, what I describe as like what people are currently doing is like they're doing the work of saying, okay, with this bigger context. They're programming that by hand. Yeah, how do we programmatically boil this down? And now that means you have to work out all the very specific details of how to make that happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I'm really curious to see about, what it looks like when they – Well, what I'm wondering is like is the code interpreter even necessary once you have this? Because like the whole reason you've got the code interpreter and why it needs to write code behind the scenes is because of the context problem. If you have a big file or a big code base or whatever, and you're like, I need you to look at all this data and like, give me a list of these things. Well, if, if it can only hold on to 8,000 things at a time and your file is already way bigger than that, then its brain just isn't big enough to, Hmm. to, to zoom in and figure out where to look. So instead it's writing, just like we do, it's writing code to make it so that the cognitive load is lower to, mm-hmm. to do it. Like, cause, cause you, Adam, you could have just line by line gone through that website and copy pasted everything yeah. off of it. Or Sam, you could have gone through steam and like taken a ruler to those graphs and try oh, to yeah. figure out what the values are. And it, you could have done that in three days. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, we rely on code to reduce the cognitive load. Well, if your brain is so fucking big and strong <laughs> that that cognitive load is essentially a meaningless concept, then you don't have to write any code at all. What do you mean? You can't right? hold an entire database of a billion things in your back. Yeah, if you can just look at a thing and just instantly be like, and instantly answer and analyze and solve any set of questions about it, and and create visualizations or whatever, and get all the nuance, you would never write code at all, right? <laughs> you just wouldn't have to do that. And so I almost wonder if the code interpreter thing, powerful as it is, is actually just an intermediate step. Uh, to augment I think the it, brain of the I think it LLM, is, but this, know? but not until the LM is much more capable. Because even even if once it can handle more volume, it still can't handle things like building a graph, right? Or some, right, like of exactly lining up data into some kind of a graphical format um, is like something that is, yeah, in principle, something that understands how to generate images and and something that understands how to process natural language. Uh, could do, right? But currently we don't have any models that are able to do both of those things at the same time. 
but you know, chat GPT, because the, there are image generation models, right? We've seen a whole bunch of those. Yep. Um, and so it could be that it offloads to another AI. But at the moment, all those image, all the image generating AIs I've seen um, heavily rely on the fact that uh, that images are really lossy in the sense of they can convey something with a large error rate and still successfully because they don't need to convey something yeah. exactly right yeah and st- yeah. they still successfully convey the idea and they can convey something really cool but if you ask if you ask uh, any of the current models that I've seen anyway if you ask them to do something really specific like really specific no, yeah. they can't do it and if you ask them to like create a graph like I haven't seen anything most, I haven't even seen anything that could put words on stuff although that may have changed recently but um, like literally they're can't getting, even put text on closer things. and closer. Like yeah. every week I see a new image from like stable diffusion or something where it's like most of a word is there now. And like all yeah. the hands look correct. But I think, like, yeah, oh I think God. Adam's point though, it's like using code in general to do things is just super, it's a tool. It's a, it basically the AI, if you think about it as a big, as a big person brain is able to also leverage things in a way that, you know, a big person brain is not very good at. So it is very hard to do precise image generation of graphs, for example, unless you're using something like some code. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't mm-hmm. just be, you'd still probably want to do that. And then even beyond that, the reality is still that it's still, and probably will be the case that, you know, there are just a billion tools that you still want to use. And there are, and there are th- if you think about it too, about an efficiency standpoint, right? Like yeah. if you're trying to use a natural language model to say like sum up a million columns on a, on a CSV file, right? Like that's an extremely inefficient way to try to solve that mm-hmm. problem versus having that same model say, ooh, I I need to sum these things up. Let me go quickly write a script and sum and get the sum instead, right? Um yeah. and so I think I think what we're gonna see is not that something like chat GPT or that that the language model becomes able to do these things. I think what we're gonna see is that we get more and more of these uh, general purpose, but still very specifically focused tools that that are because like a language model and like an image manager, like those aren't the same. Like those aren't even related to each other. Like how that stuff has to work, right? Uh, and so it doesn't even make sense to try to like make a language model that can also make images, right? Um, well, I, I think about it more like but I think those those like, hand work off to each other. I think is what we're going to yeah. start seeing. Yeah. Well, this the stated goal of of OpenAI is to make. AGI, artificial general intelligence, right? So like an an intelligence that can do all of the things that a human man. I'm telling you, if you if you upload a fucking CSV into this thing and see it try to figure out what's happening with the data, it's uncanny. It is very. It's what uh, it's what you would do. It's exactly what you would do, and it's like, oh, sorry, I ran this code, and it looks like this uh, header is a little bit different than I thought. So I'm going to analyze this other part of the document, write this new piece of code because it's also looking, it's reading the error messages that come out, right? And again, the same way that. Yeah, it's very spooky. Yeah, but my my assumption is that is that sort of like what we're seeing right now is it's kind of like um well yeah it's it's hard to find there's it's hard to find an analogy because like as humans like we have the brain that we have and there's there's no point but where it's like also suddenly your brain just becomes really good at math like you've got to work at that right? yeah but, but I think like, but there's another I think there's a misconception that people have that like our brain is one thing right yeah yeah because but it's actually a whole bunch of modules that are really good at something and really bad at literally everything else. And, and then mechanisms for them to communicate with each other and like sort of abstract information in a way that other parts can actually understand and do stuff with, right? Um, and and so if we do end up with like a general intelligence sort of a thing, it's going to be the same sort of 
imaginary construct that our own, like, like your own self is, is a, is also something you imagine exists, right? Cause yeah. you just have a bunch of parts of your brain working together. And the end result of that is this weird collection of things that you think of as conscious and others that you think of as unconscious and things that you think of as emotion and things that you think of as reason and like all these kinds of categories of thing, right? That are all being handled actually by kind of separate things that are shared with each other. And then we just so call that, is, we call that yourself, right? Mm -hmm. But you're saying being a brain is a team sport. Exactly. You know, That's like, exactly yeah, what it really is. Back together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really all, true. yeah, no, no one part of your brain is you and no one part of your brain is, is, is useful in all contexts. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. So what together. we're going to see is stuff like, and I think we're, so, and we're already seeing this as people trying to figure out how to stitch these things together. Right. Um, but what we'll be seeing is like this, these general purpose tools and like, and all the tools that we see people building right now on top of the existing various kinds of models are just different ways to connect these and bring them together in the same way that we use our own brains to do that. Right. And so I don't, I don't think the idea of like a general purpose intelligence, I don't think that even makes sense. Honestly, I think that's a, that's where those well, things I think, I like, think it does. If you just, if you, if you become less rigid in your definition, that's what I mean. Cause that's like, what I mean. Like definitionally, I don't think it's a thing. I think like. I think a general purpose intelligence just means it can handle a wide variety of kinds of problems, right? Well, I'd uh, say it's it's a thing in the same way that a video game is a thing, right? Or really, like yeah, yeah, sorry, I mean yeah, it's not a yeah. singular thing. There's not like the concept of like a of a general purpose intelligence isn't like oh well we're going to like make that and then we did it now, right? In the same way yeah. that it oh, ultimately made, will be one thing, but it's going to be made up of lots and lots of. But when you say it, composite. you mean they. Will be each, but they will each be one thing. <laughs> right. that's, that's what I'm I mean, saying. They in like, the same way that like you are a plural yes. made up of lots of parts of brain and. Body oh no, I'm, and I mean they in the sense of you, like the three of us are individual general intelligences, right? There's no such thing yeah. as like a human intelligence, right? right. And the same, yeah, correct. And in the same sense, there's like, yeah, there's not going to be a general intelligence. It's not that we're all racing and someone's going to finally make the general intelligence and now all the problems are solved, right? <laughs> it's going to be that yeah. people there model different, different subsets of generally applicable problem solving by combining these things together, coming up with new ways to do these things. And and we're going to end up with a new ecosystem of, and I think like sci-fi has done a really good job of this, of like forecasting out these different kinds of AIs of like general, of different levels of capability, Right. Um, and like approach and like some going up to like what we would then call a self-aware all the way down to like a fairly single purpose, you know, the robot who just gives you butter pads. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but for some reason is sentient. But it's, for some reason. Because <laughs> <sentient. laughs> like you could. That right? was an unnecessary addition. Well, to it helps, yeah. you know, it really helps it serve the butter better. That's our KPI, right? So yep, it does. I mean, it's way easier to tell a robot that you know isn't is an AGI, you know, tell it to pass the butter, and you don't have to give it any more instructions than that, and it can figure stuff out. But problem is, it's also depressed. Yeah, is it know? being sort of tortured spiritually the entire time? Maybe, but hey, KPIs, of course. baby. I just need butter delivery. KPIs. KPIs. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know. We live in interesting times. Certainly, you know. fucking do. I tell you what. And as a as a little final cliffhanger, uh, there's going to be congressional hearings about aliens at the end of this month. Jesus, so, what is happening? <laughs> there's just a we'll lot going about, on. We'll Tw talk about yeah, that later. I've been following didn't bring it. Bring us flying cars, but it did bring us end stage capitalism, artificial intelligence. And aliens. You, and aliens. So, so, and a global pandemic. It's a bit of a mixed bag. 
you know, as far as that goes. <laughs> Truly. Uh, yeah. And These past mean, four years have been a long decade. Yeah. Um, <laughs> four? Three. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> oh. All right. Uh, well, anyways, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, we'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa DaCosta, for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, you can just go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. And of course, as always, if you haven't yet, head over to Steam and give Crashlands 2 a wish list, because it'll, it'll help get uh, exposure for the game and boost it in the algorithms and all that good stuff, and we appreciate it tremendously. So thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.